0: Thank you, Lord. Thank you, Lord. Praise God. Thank you, Jesus. Praise God. Need a little bit more. Praise God. I'm glad you're here tonight. Did everybody bring a Bible? Did somebody bring a Bible? Good, good, good. A little bit more. Thank God. Let's use them. Let's open them up. Amen. Amen? Praise God. Well, the first place we'd like to go... Hang on a second. What I'd like to talk to you about tonight is something that we've talked about before. This isn't the first time we've talked about it. Won't be the last time we've talked about it. I'm aware that probably the last time we talked about it, very few of you were here when we did. So I'm, if, if you were here and we talked about some of these scriptures and you say that sounds familiar, forgive me. But I think it, it, it does us good to hear something more than once. We're not going to preach the same thing we preached a while ago, but we are going to hit on some similar points because this is something that is the body of Christ we have to come to terms with and have to embrace. And here's what we need to embrace, that God wants to do great things through his church, through his people, but in order for him to do great things through his church, he has to use the church. Now he can do, is he, can, is he able to do? Yeah, he can do whatever he wants to do, but he has chosen, and the scripture is very clear about this, he has chosen to make the church his body. Yeah. He has chosen to use us as his instruments. Don't you realize the book of Acts could have just been God invisibly walking around healing people? And yet, I mean, he could do that, couldn't he? Why not? But what you see instead is God using people. Now, here's our issue. When we read the Bible, we see saints and, and we see uh, wonderful, mighty people that we're, we're, very, we're very happy to look at, look at and admire, and we name our kids after them. But the truth is, they were people. There were people that had issues, there were people that weren't perfect. The only perfect person we find is Jesus Christ. So when Jesus is perfect, it's easy for us to say, well, you know, he's perfect. So, you know, cut me some slack. Jesus is perfect. Yet he used very imperfect people to do great things. And if he's going to use imperfect people, that means that we have to accept the fact that there might be some people that God uses in our own lives, which surprise us. There might be some people God uses that uh, we have to get over some of our issues with in order for God to use them as a vessel. Now, this does not give you an excuse to just do whatever you want, be whoever you want, and just say, well, I'll, I'll treat everybody the way I want to treat them, and they just need to receive me because I'm from God. No. Because then you're causing a stumbling block from the, for them that's unnecessary. That's right. But on my end... You see, there's always two ends to it. On your, on, on, on your end as a minister, don't cause unnecessary stumbling blocks. Don't, don't, don't put things that are going to cause people to trip for no reason. But on the receiving end, you need to get over some of these stumbling blocks. You need to leap over them and say, they're human, they're imperfect, but there is a perfect God that's using them. And if God can use a donkey to prophesy, God can use this person to prophesy. Thank God for that, right? Sometimes it's easier to hear the donkey prophesy because you you know it's God because there's no way a donkey could talk on its own. So you say, well, I know it's God, but how do I know this person's hearing from God? And that's a good question, and that's something you need to test out. We need to discern with our spirits. We need to judge the fruit. We need to to really let the Holy Spirit weigh that out. But here's what the Scripture says, and we're going to go to a couple places in the Word. Um, First of all, let's go to Mark chapter 9. Well, you know what? Not Mark 9. We're going to start somewhere else. Forgive me. Mark 9 is great. And uh, we may very well get there tonight. But I'd like to uh, start somewhere else, if, he, if that's all right with you. We're going to start in Jesus' hometown. Really, in, in, the, in the original language, it doesn't say his hometown. It just says his home territory. And uh, as you know, Jesus was born in Bethlehem. But at the age of two, uh, to escape Herod. They ran away to Egypt, and when they came back, they didn't settle back in Bethlehem. So the Pharisees had an issue with this, because later in Jesus' life, they said, isn't the Messiah supposed to be born in Bethlehem? And they, they said, you're from Galilee, that can't match up. What they didn't know is, he was born in Bethlehem. When he was a toddler, they moved to Egypt, and when they came back, they settled in a place called Galilee. Now Galilee, Nazareth was in Galilee. This region of Judea didn't have a great reputation. You didn't expect like the brightest minds to come out of Galilee. You didn't expect the kings to come out of Galilee. Galilee were, were the, you know, just the good old country folk. They were there were times where people would say can anything good come out of Nazareth? I mean, our city's got a better reputation than that. Where if somebody says can anything good come out of that city? This was the reputation it had, but this is where Jesus started. This is where he came from, and so when he goes back to his home city, many of you know the story of how he went into the synagogue, and he, he uh, spoke out of Isaiah, and he said, these are the things that the Spirit of the Lord has anointed me to do, and yet we know that they didn't react to him the way they should have. In fact, let's, let's, go, um, let's go to Matthew chapter 13. Matthew chapter 13, he's told a a bunch of parables, and then it says in verse 53, when Jesus had finished these parables, he departed from there. He came to his own hometown and began teaching them in their synagogue, so that they were astonished, and said, Where did this man get this wisdom and these miraculous powers? Now, if we were to stop right there, that wouldn't sound bad. Astonishment's not necessarily a bad thing, is it? You're astonished. You might interpret that as being impressed. Where did he get these things? But we see the real heart of the matter when he says, they say in verse 55, is not this the carpenter's son? Is not his mother called Mary and his brothers James and Joseph and Simon and Judas and his sisters, are they not all with us? And where then did this man get all these things? And they took offense at him. Scripture says they took offense at him. Literally, it means they stumbled, they tripped. This caused them to stumble over him. Now, a lot of times when we talk about being offended at somebody, being offended at something, we're talking about something that somebody did that, that hit us wrong. Maybe they did something wrong that offended us. In this case, the thing that offended them, Jesus didn't do a thing wrong. The thing that they were tripping over was we know this guy. We grew up with them, We know his parents. We know his brothers. His sisters are still here. His sisters have married some of my brothers. And so this is all of a sudden a big issue for them. And it says they stumbled over it. They tripped over it. Jesus said, Blessed are those who don't stumble on account of me. Now I understand somebody's a jerk. Kind of trips you up. It's hard to receive from the way they've treated you, the way they've done. But in this case, all that Jesus did would just simply be from their hometown. They weren't tripping over his personality. They were tripping over their familiarity with him. So if Jesus, perfect as he was, because see, they grew up with him, and you know the Bible says he was without sin. So he was a good kid. By 12 years old, he was amazing the big shots in Jerusalem. When they went on the field trip, They went on the big trip to Jerusalem. He's impressing the the hardest people to impress. He's impressing the guys at the synagogue, the guys at the temple. I mean, sure, you can impress the guys at your hometown synagogue, but he went to the big leagues, to Jerusalem, where all the real big heads hung out, were the ones that knew more than anything. And it says they were impressed. At 12 years old, he was asking them questions that they said, where does this kid get this knowledge? So, I could understand if he was such a, just a bratty little kid that it's hard to receive him when he's old. Because that kid used to throw eggs at our house. Or, you know, that kid never listened to me when I told him he should, you know, he should stay out of the the petunias. No, this kid was a really good kid. He was without sin. Have you ever met a kid without sin? I mean, by toddler age, you're pretty sure that they are not without sin. Now, I'm not going to get into that theology, and I'm sure you guys can forgive me. I'm going to sit and teach you for a minute as I tie my shoe, because here's what I've learned. This shoelace will not cause me to stumble. It may cause you to stumble, and I know this because I've talked to some of you. By the end of the sermon, you say, I, don't, I didn't hear a thing you said. All the time, I was looking at your shoelace. <laughs> I didn't intentionally leave my shoelace untied, but it works well for this sermon, because we let the smallest things cause us to stumble. That wouldn't have caused me to stumble. I could, I've learned, you trust me, I played soccer when I was growing up. And, and my coach, more than anything, yeah, go, Jonathan, kick the ball, Jonathan, pass to that guy, Jonathan. But the thing that my coach learned to yell the most at me was, tie your shoelaces, Jonathan. <laughs> I swore I did it just like everybody else, but I must have had some weird shoelaces because they were untied often. Isn't it funny that we could, we could, God could be speaking through somebody and we could let a shoelace distract us the whole time. When of course, none of you were distracted by it. I'm just making sure. Jesus, a perfect kid, not a brat, not a, not a Dennis the Menace character, but just the simple fact that they knew his roots. Here's the, here's the problem. They knew him after the flesh. The problem is they knew and were familiar with his humanity. They were familiar with his roots, his upbringing, and it's very difficult for them to ever assume that this man could have something from God because we know him so well. Now, how does that translate to a group of people where we've known, we know each other for years or or you might have known them only for a few months, but you've already gotten close to them. You've already seen them when they let their guard down. And they're not perfect like Jesus. What happens when God wants to use that person to speak into your life? What happens when God wants to use that person? Uh, Perhaps they're in a position in your life where not everybody's in this position, but perhaps they're in a position in your life where they could correct you on something. You have a choice. Can God use this person? Or am I going to go back and say, I know you too well for God to use you in my life? Let's read the rest of this and see what happens. Most of you already know where this is going. They took offense at him. They stumbled over this. And he said to them, a prophet is not without honor except in his hometown and in his own household. And he did not do many miracles there because of their unbelief. I want to read you from uh, the other uh, account of this very same thing in Mark chapter 6. Mark chapter 6 in verse 4, he says, this, it's the same story. He says, a prophet is not without honor except in his hometown among his own relatives and in his own household. Now, you'd think if Jesus were to have honor, he would have had the most honor amongst the people that knew him best. Because he was without sin. Don't you think his relatives would have been impressed by him? But still, even though they might have liked him, even though they might have loved him, it's, it's tough to switch your brain from saying, this is a person I know that I love, that I care for, to this is a person that God's using. It says in the next verse, he could do no miracle. Now that's a challenging phrase, isn't it? Because we're talking about Jesus, the son of God. And it says he could do no miracle. You go back to the Greek, it says the same thing. You can dig as hard as you want. It says he could do no miracle. He could do no miracle. Except that he laid hands on a few sick people and healed them. The original language says he could do no mighty work or work of power. Except heal a few sick people. Now, this stretches me right there. Because I think to, to, to to the guys writing this down. To them... A tiny little miracle was just healing a few sick people. To us, that's, whoa, you know, huge. But, but in, the, in the life of Jesus and the work of Jesus, this was little compared to what he wanted to do. Yeah. To what he could have done, to what he wanted to do, and he was not limited by the power of God. God's power was infinite. Jesus' willingness to be used was perfect. There was nothing wrong with Jesus here. The only limitation was on the people who were supposed to be receiving from him. I mean, he preached the message, guys. He went to their synagogue and said, this is what I'm here to do. Oh, couldn't you just hear that? Wouldn't that bring you hope? In so many other places, when he announced, I'm here to heal the sick. I'm here to raise the dead. I'm here to cast out demons. They brought those people to him. But in this case, they tripped over something. They tripped over the family connection. They tripped over the fact that they knew him so well. The Bible says in another place that even his own brothers didn't believe in him. Isn't that weird? Now we've got a, some books. We find out later in the New Testament that they came along. Guys like James came along. His half-brother James wrote A great letter in the the New Testament was a big part of the early church. And yet, while Jesus was walking the earth, he was not impressed. His own brother didn't believe in him. Now, either his own brothers were just poorly taught. But you got to think, who are their parents? Their parents, Joseph, a man who was righteous, according to the Bible, a good man, a righteous man. He was smart enough to, I mean, he was, he was a good enough man that when he originally thought his fiance was cheating on him, he was going to put her away quietly instead of making a big deal out of it like the law said he could have. He was going to handle it quiet. When an angel came to him and said, your, your, your fiance didn't do anything wrong, this, this child is of the Lord. He raised this child. He bore the shame that everybody was putting on him because, you know, not everybody in his hometown believed that Jesus was born of a virgin. That's a tough pill to swallow. So Joseph had to live most of his life with people assuming that he was so much of a doormat that he married this woman that had been cheating on him and he raised this child that wasn't his as if it were his own. So that's the kind of man Joseph is. Mary is the kind of woman who hears the word of the Lord, says, you're going to get pregnant. And she says, I'm a virgin. How can I get pregnant? He says, is anything too, too hard for God? And she says, whatever you say, let it be done unto me according to your word. I'm, I'm just blessed to be, I'm blessed to be honored like this. So these boys, these half brothers of Jesus had good parents. You can't blame their parents. They were probably taught the word from a young age. And yet they didn't believe in Jesus. Not because Jesus was such a bad older brother to them. Because who could have been a better brother than Jesus? But just because they knew him so well. Now if that was the issue with a perfect person, don't you think that in a church like this, in a group like this, we might get to know people so well that it's difficult for us to see past their humanity and see that God can use that person. Because they couldn't find any real dirt on Jesus, but I can find dirt on any of you. I don't want to. I won't. (laughs) The scripture says, know no man after the flesh. Don't know anyone after the flesh, which means you can you know how you really you come into the church and you first time in the church and you meet people and you think that they're just saints walking on earth and, and they are saints. See, the Bible says that saints aren't just perfect people. Saints are are people like you and me. We're all saints because of what Jesus did, right? It means that we've been made clean, we've been made holy by his blood. But you, you walk in, you think these people are just the most angelic people you've ever met, you think they can do no wrong, and then you get to know them. They invite you over for a barbecue, and they don't do anything bad, but they make stupid jokes every now and then. And it just, was lame, it was corny, or, or they, they make a, a dumb decision, or, or, you know, they say something offhand, then you say, I don't think they should have said that, and and, and all of a sudden, you're forming an opinion of them, and suddenly, you had them on a pedestal before, and now they've been knocked down a few pegs, and the next time they, you know, maybe they're on the praise and worship team, or or maybe they're leading a prayer group, or, or maybe they're leading a Bible study, and all of a sudden, you find it hard to get past that person you know too well. See, when I was... First in youth, we had a wonderful youth leader, a guy that was so committed to teaching us the word of God, didn't water anything down, just preached the word to us. The problem was, when I came into the youth group, most of the guys in the youth group were his cousins. You should have seen, and some of you know exactly who I'm talking about, and I don't think it's a secret. Nobody was, I'm not going to spill any weird little secrets. There was no real weird little secrets. It's just he had such a hard time. Wednesday night, he'd have a message to preach, and his cousins and his brothers would heckle him the whole service. Oh, you're such a goof, they'd say. And I remember there was a point where we had a, f- a fresh group come in, young kids that didn't grow up with the guy. And when they hear it, they say, oh, yeah. And they latched on. And suddenly, all of a sudden, we seem to have some momentum because they're not just seeing their brother or their cousin. They're seeing a guy that God's using to speak into their life. And they're able to accept him in a new way. So here's the thing. The question isn't whether or not this person's got any authority. The question is, do we have any honor? Because the thing is, Jesus said, the issue is you don't honor me. You don't honor the prophet. Here's the thing. I've learned, and I hope you have too, that each and every one of us has received a unique grace from God on our life. Unique giftings, a unique grace to work in the area that he's called you to work, whether it be administration, whether it be serving, whether it be speaking, whether it be singing, whether it be encouragement, whatever. God's given you a unique grace on your life. And what we have to do is to learn to honor the grace among, uh, above the person. Honor the grace more than you honor the person. Before I got married, a pastor that I admired greatly, an older pastor that, that had some experience in the area, looked at me and said something that I, at first I, hit me the wrong way. But this, the more I thought about it, the more I knew he was right. He said to me, he said, Jonathan, when you get married, you have to believe more in the, in the covenant of marriage than you do in the person. I was like, wait, I'm supposed to believe in them. Isn't that like the, the thing, you know? I believe in you. I believe everything about you. You know, I believe that you're the greatest person that walked the earth. He said, you've got to believe in marriage more than you believe in that other person. Because there's going to be a point in your life where they let you down, where they fall off the pedestal, and you realize they're not perfect, or you might say they're so far from perfect, I don't know if I can accept it, but you believe enough in the covenant that, Jesus, that God himself joined the two of you together, that you say they may be imperfect, but that covenant is able to hold us. I believe enough in marriage that I, that I, that I, that I can stick this out, we can walk this through. I believe that there's a grace on it. So when you see somebody used in the body of Christ, you're going to know that they're human. You're going to know that they have limitations. But it says Jesus couldn't do any mighty work because of their dishonor, and their dishonor turned into unbelief. Did they believe in God? Do you think they believed in God? Do you think they believed that God could heal? Do you think that they believed that God could open the blind eyes? think they believe that God could cast out demons? See, the, the, the issue is not with God. The issue is the guy that God was using. We all believe in God. Do we have enough honor for the grace of God? And I may, I may be, need to explain that grace. Grace is a word that is used in so many different ways and areas. I'm not talking about the grace that forgives your sins, that that overlooks. I'm talking about the way it's also used in the New Testament to talk about God's empowerment to do what you can't do. So When Peter talks about, he says, as everyone's received a unique gift, employ it in serving one another, it says for the one who serves, serve in the strength that God gives. The one who speaks, speak as if God is speaking through you so that we will all be good stewards of the manifold grace of God. What that means is, is that there's a grace on your life to do something you can't do. So when I'm talking about grace right now, Yes, I believe in the grace of God that got you saved. I believe in the grace of God that, that uh, stepped in and, and made you righteous when you weren't righteous. I believe in the grace of God that covers you. But right now, I'm talking about the grace of God to operate in the gifts that God's given you. So we have to believe that there's a grace on Tony's life to do something that, you know what? There's a grace on Tony's, this is just one of the things on his life. There's a grace on Tony's life to, to play and to lead us into worship through his, through his instrument. Now, if you've got an issue with Tony outside of church, you might, you might look at the front, and every time he hits, he hits a chord or he strums, all of a sudden you're, you're kind of jolted out of that time of worship because you know this about Tony. How can I concentrate when, when Tony and I had a fight, and, and I don't even know how he can stand up there before the Lord when he talked to me like that. And all of a sudden you're jolted out, and it's Tony's fault. Well, you got to get over your issue with Tony. Tony. I don't think anybody's got an issue with you. But you got to get over your issue with Tony and realize that God will use people. And I'm going to honor not just the person, but the grace on that person's life. So we all believe in God. Do I believe that God can use that person that's about to lay their hands on me? Do I believe that God can use the person that's prophesying? Do I believe that God's using the person that's preaching? And that's something we got to get past their humanity. We don't want us to trip before we get to the finish line. It says they tripped over Jesus. They stumbled. They took offense at him. Not because he did anything wrong, because they knew him too well. And so because of that, he couldn't do any mighty work. And it says in verse 6 of Mark 6, it says he wondered at their unbelief. You want, you love to make Jesus wonder. There were a couple places in the Gospels where Jesus wondered. He marveled at their faith. I want to be that guy yeah, that Jesus is saying, man, I don't see this often. This is impressive faith. But you don't want to go in the record book as the guy that Jesus marveled and was so impressed with your unbelief. Looking at you like you're a weird little species. Like how in the world can you, can you have that much unbelief? And these are people he knew. The sad thing is, there were people that needed a miracle that day. There were people that Jesus grew up with that might have been blind, might have been lame, might have been demon-possessed, might have been epileptic, might have been Paralyzed. People that Jesus knew well. And his heart was the same as the heart of the Father. He wanted them free. He wanted them well. Don't you think Jesus wanted it? That's why he went to his hometown. And he put up with their nonsense because he loved them. And yet they were the ones that put up the wall because they knew him too well. They were the ones that said, we know him too well. Isn't Isn't this the carpenter's son? Don't we know his brother's? Isn't this Joseph's kid and Mary's kid? Aren't his sisters still living around here? It would be a sad thing if you miss out on what God's doing because you have an issue with somebody. Let's look to the next thing that we want to go to here. Praise God. I want to bring you to a point where we look at what God says, what Jesus said about John the Baptist. Now, if you could stumble over somebody, you might stumble over John the Baptist. It's a guy who had no social sense. <laughs> his parents were old when he was born. And the scripture says that by the time he was a boy, he went out to the wilderness and w- was raised in the wilderness. Doesn't say there was anybody in his life raising him. He had parents for a little while, but I assume they died when he was young because it says he went to the wilderness and he grew up there. So we got a, a, a real life Mowgli here whose diet includes locusts and honey, whose clothes is wild animal fur that he skinned himself. And like we said before, I don't think he was, you know, Dolce and Gabbana kind of designer. I don't know how well he cleaned. I don't don't think he tanned the hide. He might have just skinned the thing, said that's good enough, tied some things together, put it on, and he might have smelled like a dead animal as he walked around. Unkempt. And then he doesn't come and use nice words and sugary speech. He comes onto the scene yelling at people. <laughs> Already, we're really warming up to this guy. This is the guy, you know, the reason he was put in prison before he got his head chopped off is because he didn't know how to behave at a dinner party. He's invited to a dinner party, and he just doesn't care. <laughs> and he says, You shouldn't be sleeping with your brother's wife. He says it directly to the king. King doesn't like this. Because John, you know, didn't pull him aside and say, King, I need to talk to you. Herod, let's talk in the back room. Herod's got all his friends. He's saying, you know that that famous preacher everybody's talking about? I invited him to dinner. Want to come see? Want to come see the show? John shows up. And they're expecting that John's going to say something great about the kingdom of heaven. They're expecting that John's going to talk about, you know, how, how, how Israel needs to get right. But instead, John stands there and he looks at the dinner party host and says, you shouldn't be sleeping with your brother's wife. This is wrong. And they say, you can't just do that in front of everybody. And they throw him in prison. And later, that same wife is so upset that she, she finds a way to get his head chopped off. So this is the guy that comes on the scene. He's... Telling people to repent. And when the religious people come along and they want to come to the special meetings, John the Baptist, the evangelist, has come. And because he's so popular with the people, he's telling them, Repent. I don't know, there must have been the Spirit of God on this man's life because all he's saying is, Repent, and people are loving it. He's telling them they need to repent, but he's also telling them, You can be forgiven. So as he comes to prepare the way for the Lord, there's groups coming. And all of a sudden, the religious hotshots come. And you know what? If they came in the back door of the church, I would do my best to be diplomatic. I would think. <laughs> I'm not going you know, to change the message, but you'd at least be like, I'm glad you came. I'm glad you came. John takes one look at him and says, who warned you? You bunch of snakes. Who warned you? And he called them out for the fakes they were and said, if you're really repenting, you'd have fruit. He said, Get out of here. So this is, this is the guy that comes onto the scene. At one point, somebody says, are you Elijah? He says, I'm not Elijah. They said, well, who are you then? He says, I'm the voice of the man. I'm the voice of the one crying in the wilderness Prepare." The way of the Lord. Praise God. Let's turn in our Bibles to Matthew 11. John stumbled over Jesus as well at some point because he had a certain expectation of Jesus. And when he was thrown into prison and he didn't immediately get out, he began to be depressed. And he sent his disciples to Jesus and he asked, he told his disciples to ask, are you the one or should we wait for another? He's hurt, he's offended. Jesus answered in verse 4, said to them, go and report to John what you see here and see. The blind receive sight, the lame walk, the lepers are cleansed and the deaf hear." The dead are raised up, and the poor have the gospel preached to them. And blessed is he who does not take offense at me, or blessed is he who doesn't trip over me, who doesn't stumble over me. And as these men were going away, Jesus began to speak to the crowds about John. Now, don't you think at this point, Jesus might have had a reason to be offended himself? He's he's publicly been questioned by somebody who was part of his ministry from the very beginning. that The baptism of John marked the beginning of Jesus' ministry. And yet Jesus doesn't go down that route. He says, what did you go out into the wilderness to see? A reed shaken by the wind? In other words, somebody you can manipulate and we just kind of bow to whatever the winds of culture and, 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 the, and, the, and the trends of the time we're doing. Is that who you expected to see? He said in verse 8, What did you go out to see? A man dressed in soft clothing? Those who wear soft clothing are in king's palaces. But what did you go out to see? A prophet? Yes, I tell you, and one who is more than a prophet. This is the one about whom it's written, Behold, I send my messenger ahead of you, who will prepare your way before you. Truly I say to you, among those born of women, there has not arisen anyone greater than John the Baptist. So, Jesus, who could have been offended, says there's no greater prophet than John the Baptist. In all of the old covenant, there's no one better than John the Baptist. But then he says, yet the one who is least in the kingdom of heaven is greater than he. He says, from the days of John the Baptist until now, the kingdom of heaven suffers violence, and violent men take it by force. For all the prophets and the lost prophesied until John. Listen to this. And if you're willing to accept it, John himself is Elijah who was to come. Now, Jesus is not saying that John is Elijah reincarnated. We, of course, know that the Bible does not leave any room for that. He's not saying he's actually Elijah. He's saying he is because here's the thing. The prophets had said, before the Messiah comes, specifically in Malachi, before the b- Messiah comes, I will send Elijah. I will I'll send that spirit of Elijah. Somebody will come with the same spirit of Elijah and will prepare the way of the Lord. Will restore the hearts of the fathers to the sons and the sons to the father. So a way would be made for the Lord. So he's so in even even the most stubborn religious folk knew that before the Messiah would come, there would be somebody who came in that spirit of Elijah. And Jesus says, if you're willing to accept it, it literally says, if you're willing to receive it, John was that person. Now, here's what I ask. What difference does it make whether they're willing to receive it or not? Either he is or isn't, right? You'd think that if God sent the man in the spirit of Elijah, that's all that matters. But Jesus is saying, in order for you to receive me for who I am, in order for you to really benefit from everything that John said and everything I say, you've got to receive that that's who he is. If you're willing to accept it, he's Elijah. Which means that they could have walked away doing two things they could have walked away saying, I don't believe that. And that would have caused a chain reaction that they, they didn't believe John was the one sent in the spirit of Elijah and therefore they didn't believe Jesus is the Messiah. And that really would have messed them up because they would have tripped over John and they would have tripped over Jesus. Or they could walk away saying, that's hard for me to hear, but I believe I'm willing to receive that's who he was. Do you think there might be some people in our lives that God says, if you're willing to receive it, this is who this person is to you. If you're willing to receive it, this person's a prophet in your life. If you're willing to receive it, this person is somebody I'm going to use in your life. If you're willing to receive it, that's who they'll be. But if you're not willing to receive it, you don't get the benefit from it. I'm not going to force you to believe that that's who he is. Did that change who John was, whether they believed it or not? No. But it changed who he was to them. Right. And if it could change who it was to them, it changed who Jesus was to them. Watch what Jesus says after this. He says, he who has ears to hear, let him hear. So Jesus is defining who this man was to them. He says, if you have ears to hear, let, let, let him hear. Then he says, but to what shall I compare this generation? It's like children sitting in the marketplaces who call out to the other children and say, we played the flute for you and you did not dance. We sang a dirge and a dirge is like a funeral song. We sang a dirge and you did not mourn. For John came neither eating nor drinking and they say he has a demon. Because John came as that prophet, that rough prophet out of the wilderness and he didn't, he didn't feast and he didn't drink He did not not celebrate while he was alive. And so they say something's wrong with him. He's socially retarded. Something's wrong with him. He's got a demon. He just doesn't fit in. He has a demon. And then he says, the son of man came eating and drinking. The son of man, Man, Jesus, came having parties and, and feasting with people that they were not too happy he was feasting with. And they say, behold, look, a gluttonous man and a drunkard, a friend of tax collectors and sinners. So, you know, they can't be pleased. John doesn't feast enough, so he must have a demon. I don't know if you've ever accused anybody of that. They didn't come to your little get-together, so they have a demon. They don't come to any of my Christmas parties. They're they're demon possessed. I've never made that connection myself. John was so antisocial that they're like, something's wrong. He's got a demon. Then Jesus is so welcome and so social that they say he's a drunkard and a glutton. Now, let me ask you, do any of you here believe that he was a drunkard or a glutton? No. I've, heard somebody, I've heard people preach that, that, that they say, see, Jesus was a drunkard. And he was a glutton because people said it. You, you actually believe these guys? Really? Come on. You gonna believe those, what those guys say about Jesus? Jesus says wisdom is vindicated by your deeds. In other words, we're gonna show you that you're wrong because look at the result, look at the fruit. But here's the deal: their limitations that they put on people and what they expected stopped them from receiving what God wanted to do through those people. Because they expected something of John that he was never supposed to be. They couldn't receive the word of repentance. And the word of forgiveness that he brought. They couldn't receive it because they were expecting something different. Listen. Here, they're not, they're not offended by what he says. Here, they're not offended by his prophecies. Here, they're not offended by the way he baptizes. They're offended at his social life. They're offended at how he acts around them. Isn't that sad? They're not saying, I have a problem with what he said. I have a problem with... With, with his methods, they have a problem with who he is as a person. They have a problem with his personality. And here, they don't have a problem with Jesus' teaching. Now, they probably did too. But what they really have a problem with is how Jesus is acting, how he relates to people, how he eats and drinks with people that he shouldn't be eating and drinking with. And they stumble over it. Because they stumble, they don't get what he wants to give them so badly. John the Baptist was necessary John came that the mountains would be leveled and the valleys would be lifted up that a straight way would be prepared for the Lord in other words if you heard what John had to say your heart was primed for what Jesus was there to do if you heard John John is the first guy in the old covenant to offer remission of sins without the without shedding of blood You don't see it anywhere else. And it's not John that's offering. It's God that's offering it through John. Now, that's something pretty cool. What an offer. Because what God wanted to do was to have a people whose hearts were ready for when the Messiah would come, that that, that he could come and their hearts would already be prepared and a way for the Lord would be made in their hearts and they receive him with open arms. If you listen to John, if you receive what John had to say, you'd be ready for Jesus. In fact, some of John's disciples, the moment Jesus walks by after he's baptized, John turns and looks and says, behold, the Lamb of God who takes away the sins of the world. And John's disciples who've said, John, we're sticking with you. We're following you. Whatever you want to do, we're going. The minute he says that, they say, good being with you, John. See you later. And they go and follow Jesus. And that was the right move. Because you see what happened to the guys that stuck with John? They get stuck with these dumb questions wondering who Jesus really is. John had his season. When Jesus came, the time of mourning was over and the time of rejoicing had come. But they were tripping over the people. They were tripping over the humanity. They stumbled and they didn't receive it. You recall that Joseph... Joseph was the instrument of God's salvation for his family. His family would have starved had he not been put in a position to rule in Egypt. His family would have died. He was a source of God's salvation to his brothers and his father. But when God gave him a dream telling him that, he had a dream and he said, I had a dream, and he had, he had more than one dream, but he had, one of his dreams said, I had a dream... Where I was in the middle, and you guys were like, like, you know, things of wheat. And I was standing in the middle, and, and you all bowed to me. Now, we can debate whether that was the smartest thing to tell your brothers or not. But the point is that because he was their little brother, they couldn't receive that they'd ever have to bow to him. And because of that, they went through a bunch of heartache they never had to go through. And they put him through a bunch of heartache they never had to go through. Moses. His brother and his sister are his biggest supporters until there's a point where he marries an Ethiopian woman. When he marries this woman who's not an Israelite, they get offended and they come to him and they're, they, the Bible says they started speaking against them. and then they finally get in a meeting with him and this is usually how it goes. You see, Jesus told us to go directly to the person. You got a problem with somebody, you go to them. But you know what usually happens? You've already had a bunch of conversations with everybody else about them. And finally it gets through and finally somebody says, finally Moses says, we need to have a meeting. Do you have a problem? And they come and they think they're all righteous and saying it. And they say, who says that you're the only guy that can hear from God? Can't we hear from God? Do you guys think that they could hear from God? I think they could. But that's not the point. Who are you to lead us? Who are you to hear from God? And do you know what happens? Thank God we're in the new covenant and this stuff doesn't happen like it did in the old covenant. Immediately, Miriam's skin is leprous. She gets, and it's not just like early onset leprosy. All of a sudden her skin is white and she sees the results of leprosy all over her body. Now Moses could have said, that's what you get. (laughs) That'll learn you. But instead, he goes to God and he intercedes for them. You know, the scripture says there, and Moses was more humble than anyone else. He was humble enough to go to God and say, look, I know they messed up. But for my sake, could you make it right again? Could you forgive them and, and make them clean? And for Moses' sake, God did. But you see these time and time again, people tripping over humanity. Moses was an instrument of salvation, not just to those who use an instrument of God's deliverance to the Israelites. And yet when he first comes on the scene, there's, there's, there's a, a slave, an Egyptian slave driver. He's beating the Israelites. He's beating this guy. He's just going to beat him to death. And Moses stops it. And instead of getting a thank you, these guys later say, who, who are you? Who are you to rule over us? So you going to come and beat us and hide us in the sand too? so they didn't receive him. They they could have received him, but they couldn't get past who he was. And he had to struggle with that for the rest of his life. They're still kind of struggling with him. They're, They're still fighting with him. They're still offended at him. Now here's my point. How many, how many things could God do, does God want to do using people in your life that are imperfect and you've got dirt on? Now, if they're smart, They'll get, they'll get past those issues. They'll repent. They'll turn. They'll, if they need to apologize to you, they'll apologize to you. I'm not saying we have license to go around beating people up and doing terrible things and then saying, well, you just shouldn't be offended at me. Stop being offensive. You know? But I'm talking on the receiving end. We need to be able to say, I may know this person well. I may have grown up with them. I may have changed their diapers. I might, I might go to, you know, go over their house for a barbecue. I might know them well. We might have had our disagreements. But can I believe that God can use this person? If I can, I need to get over my issues with them as a human and say, can God use them? If God's going to use them, then Lord, I honor you. I'm going to honor them because I honor you. It's not a free path to do whatever you want. But I am saying, God put us as a body. Put us together with other people, imperfect beings, to be used by a perfect God. And if he's going to use us, we've got to get over our issues. And we've got to say, I'm willing to to forgive. I'm willing to get over. I'm willing to to realize that you might tell corny jokes and you might have scored, you know, scored badly in high school, but you know what I'm going to do? I'm going to realize that God's able to use you. When the Apostle Paul first got born again, you could understand why he might not be the most popular guy at the church. (laughs) His background before he got saved was he was the chief hunter that hunted down Christians and brought them to court and had them killed. So that guy comes to your next church service, you may not immediately believe that he's got the best of intentions. And you want to hit the idiot who showed him your secret location. The Bible says that Barnabas, Barnabas took a hold of Saul and he took him to the apostles and said, this guy's for real, we can trust him. Now, it's one thing to let this guy sit in the back. The, the guy that used to, I mean, he, I mean, he might have put your, your relatives on trial. He might have put your pastor on trial. Now he's in the church. It's one thing to let him sit in the back and not give him dirty looks. It's another thing when he starts thinking that he can tell you what to do. Yes. He starts telling you, the Lord spoke to me. I have a new revelation. You can say, well, you sit back in the back seat, Saul. Because, I, I mean, so far, you know, we don't really trust you. Barnabas took a hold of him and said, this man's of God. And it was Barnabas that, that took him to Antioch and, and said, Come see, Saul, what, what the Lord's doing here. And Saul was, was smart enough to submit to the apostles. And when he had a great revelation, he brought it to the apostles and said, I want to run this by you. I want to make sure I didn't run in vain. And yet the church got over their stuff with him and were able to receive. Then there's a moment that Peter gets off and he gets, he gets a little bit into the flesh and he starts getting afraid of his Jewish brethren and he stops eating with the Gentile Christians. And this little Paul, isn't it funny that, that when God gave other people new names, like Abram became Abraham, exalt, it went from exalted father, father of many nations. Oh, that's wonderful. You know, um, God gives, it, it changes Jacob's name to Israel. God changed Simon's name. Simon means reed. He changed it to rock. Man. And then, and then Saul, Saul, they stopped calling him Saul, and they just call him by his Latin nickname, which just means little guy. Like, God, you got any other nicknames for me? Other than (laughs) Pee-wee? But anyways, little Pee-wee comes up to Peter, and I'm sure Peter was a big guy. Peter seems like a big guy, right? And if Paul's name meant small, and that was not his Given name, that was the name, the kind of his Latin name. So that he probably was a smaller guy. He stands, he looks at Peter, and says he rebuked him to his face in front of people. Don't you think those guys might have had some friction in their lives after that? But they, yet, when you see Peter write his letters, he calls Paul's letters scripture, and he says we need to pay attention to what Paul has written. So you see Peter could have could have said I have a beef with this guy. I got a problem with him. It could have let that cause a divide and it could have split the church and it could have caused real issues. But instead, Peter said, what God is doing through that man is more important than any issue I might have. He submitted to the rebuke. He received it and he got over it and said, I love you, Paul. He calls him his beloved brother, Paul, and says, we all need to pay attention to what this guy is writing. Now, those are the kind of people we need in the church that will get over their beefs, that will get over their stumbling blocks and say, if God's using them, I'm on board. I can forgive. I can forget. I can move on. Love covers a multitude of sins. I can watch this person be used by God. The apostle Paul said, I am least fit to be called an apostle. Don't you think someone else might have noticed that too? But by the grace of God, I am what I am. And his grace to me has not proved in vain for I worked harder than all the rest yet not me but the grace of God through me. So here's Paul saying, I don't measure up to what an apostle should be and yet every one of those other apostles said we believe in you. Yes. They got over him in the flesh to see what God was doing. Yeah. Yeah. Now we look around and go, yeah, but the, this guy's no Paul. Yeah, but this guy's no Moses. This guy's no John the Baptist. We have to realize God will use imperfect people. Can we get over our humanity? Can we get over our personality differences? And can we, when God says to us, if you're willing to receive it, this is who this person is. Then you'll be faced with a question, am I willing to receive it? Am I willing to receive that person as a pastor? Am I willing to receive that person as a pastor? a worship leader? Am I willing to receive that person as a prayer leader? Am I willing to receive that person as somebody that God sent to encourage me? Am I willing to receive that person as God's using to correct me? Those are things. Now, not everybody, you don't have to receive everybody that says they're from God. You will inevitably have people that try to force their way into your life, and just because they say God sent them doesn't mean God sent them. Just because they say they're a prophet doesn't mean they're a prophet. Just because they say they're here to correct you doesn't mean they have a right to correct you. So this is not my sermon on receive everyone who says they're coming in the name of Jesus. But I am saying God will use people that you don't expect. Get over your humanity. Get over their humanity. And don't trip over stuff that doesn't need to be tripped over. Let the Holy Spirit prove it out. Let the fruit bear it out. And then receive what God is doing through that person. Amen we stand up? Thank you, Lord. The Bible says keep fervent in your love for one another. The word keep is important. Keep fervent. It's easy to be fervent in your love for people you don't know that well. That may sound weird. Do you know my expectations for people I don't know well are pretty low? And because my expectations are low, it's hard for them to miss expectations. It's hard for them to not reach my expectations because my expectations aren't that high. If a new person comes in the, in the building and it's their first time here, I'm not offended if they miss my birthday. If my wife, if my wife forgets my birthday, that's, that's more of a hard thing for me. Now, she never has. She probably never will. But if she did, that would be harder for me to accept. Why? The closer you get to somebody, the higher the level of expectation you have for them. But the Bible says love covers a multitude of sin. The word sin really means to miss the mark. It's not a bad thing that we set high marks for people we're close to. The closer you get to people in the body, the higher the bar will be set. They will inevitably miss the bar. The fact that you're fervent in your love will cover the times that they miss the mark. It'll cover it. It'll make up the distance. And it'll say, you know what? They missed my expectation. You might say, well, let me do everybody a favor and just lower the bar. But that's not very good, is it? You can't live life expecting nothing out of anybody. You keep the bar high. But when they miss it, love covers. Love covers. Father, we're coming to you understanding that, that Lord, we are, we're people. And... Uh, as human beings, there are limitations. There are things that we, we do that rub each other the wrong way. There, uh, there are times where we've, we've really um, not represented you well. And Lord, I, I know that you've forgiven us. I know that your blood cleanses us. Uh, Lord, I also know that sometimes as human beings, we have to learn to uh, forgive as you forgave and, and not keep an account of a suffered wrong, as it says in 1 Corinthians 13. So, Lord, I'm asking you that you would help us to discern each other after the spirit, not after the flesh, to properly see each other as you've made us. That, Lord, we would honor each other. We would honor the grace on each other's life. We would honor the fact that you're using us. Even though we might not be perfect, you're still using us. And that we'd be able to get over. Lord, you said that to, to have strife and division and jealousy and bitterness is to be fleshly as to be like babies and infants in Christ. So Lord, we refuse to walk in strife. We refuse to stay in in division and bitterness and jealousy. Lord, we're asking you that you would show us any of those areas that need to be be made right again, that need to be corrected, that we would see them for what they are, and we'd be able to embrace the gifts in the body. We'd be able to embrace the gifts in the family, and we'd be able to see past the fact that we know each other well. We'd be able to see past our own familiarity, and we'd be able to see each other as gifts that you sent to the body and honor them as such.